Good morning. It's good to have you with us this morning, especially after probably a late night last night. Um, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that we've been going through a series on Advent uh, and looking at sort of the arc of Scripture for the past four weeks. But before that, we were in a series on 1 Corinthians. This will be our last installment in Did I just go out? There we go. Uh, so this will be our last installment in that. If you come back next week, Kevin will be starting a new sermon series. But today we're going to be, like I said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, one announcement we forgot to put in the bulletin, I believe, and forgot to mention earlier is that uh, Sunday school will be starting back this next Sunday. So for the adults, uh, we'll be continuing our study of Revelation with Matt Brock in the Fellowship Hall, and the students, of course, will be meeting over in Salter Hall. So next Sunday, and of course, child care will be picking back up in Children's Church as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if you'll start reading with me, we'll start in verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those by whom you accredit it by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes... See that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you, uh, to visit you with the brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Jesus Christ. Amen. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we open up Your Word together this morning, Lord. We are reminded, Lord, that it's as sharp as a two-edged sword, that it pierces, dividing to the bone and the marrow. And so, Lord, we ask that Your Word would do its effectual work in our hearts this morning, Lord, that it would cut us deeply 
that it would expose us, that it would show us the areas of our heart that do not look like You. Lord, we also ask that by Your Word, Lord, that You would strengthen us, that You would encourage us. Lord, this can only be done by Your Spirit. So, Lord, through the teaching and preaching of Your Word this morning, Holy Spirit, would You come and do Your work among us. Lord, we love You and we thank You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I don't know if you had this experience growing up, but I remember uh, somewhere around the teenage years, right, you start going and hanging out places without your parents going with you, right? There's birthday parties you want to go to. There's uh, different events that you go to, maybe through school or whatever. And, you know, instead of the parents going with you, now all of a sudden they're dropping you off at the door because you're way too cool to be seeing mom and dad, right? So you want to have them drop you off as far away from the door as humanly possible, and you want to get out before you're seen, right? Uh, and I remember that as this is happening... I started getting the speech before mom would get me out of the car, right? This is like, this is the concentrated, this is everything I've told you about how to not embarrass me. That It's that talk, right? And something that I found especially interesting was that that talk was unique to each child, right? It wasn't sort of a, a one-size-fits-all speech. This was a speech that included some points for me and some points for Nathan. They were typically very different, right? For me, it was, don't say anything stupid. If I've told you that something is a secret, it really means it's a secret. Don't go run your mouth about that, right? Um, if I told you to come outside at this time, be here at this time, not 15 minutes later, right? Like there, It was specific to me, and Nathan had a different set of points for when Mom dropped him off somewhere, right? That's kind of what Paul is doing here, right? Paul's about to conclude his letter, and as he's doing that... He's given them sort of the rundown of a few things they need to remember. And it's specific to this church and the issues that we've seen throughout this series in 1 Corinthians. The issues this church has. Paul takes one last opportunity to address a few of them before moving on and concluding his letter before he hopefully comes to visit. So there's four things we're going to cover this morning. Please don't panic, but there's four points. Okay, um, I'm not going to spend equal time on all of them. We're going to spend the most time looking at the first point on Christian giving. Um, but I think there are four things that we really kind of have to talk about in this passage. So I know the ball game ran late last night. I know it's cloudy and kind of cold, but stay with me. Uh, but we're going to look at Christian giving. We're going to look at opportunities for kingdom service. We're going to look at submission to kingdom laborers. And then we're going to look at what Christian strength is. So let's dive in. Again, we'll start at verse 1. We'll be camped out in verses 1 through 4 for a little while. So again, Paul begins his, uh, kind of his conclusion on the issue of Christian giving. So again, I'm going to read this section one more time. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no more collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Alright, so let's talk about what exactly he's asking here. What is the need? Alright, so Paul is asking for a collection for the saints. Well, what saints? He says in verse 3 that these gifts are going to Jerusalem, right? The church in Jerusalem. So what exactly is going on in Jerusalem? Why do they need financial assistance? We know around this time that it's possible there was a famine going on around Jerusalem. But we also know there was persecution. So likely there was it was a mix of these two things that led to some serious financial distress for the church in Jerusalem. And this was the mother church, right? This was the church out of which all these other Gentile churches were born. And so the Apostle Paul 
goes to these churches and he begins basically exhorting them to give a collection for the saints in Jerusalem so that they can send support back to Jerusalem and help this church that's in financial distress. And so, if that's what Paul's asking for, what in the what exactly is he asking them to do? Well, let's look. There's a few things here that he asked them specifically to do concerning this offering. And the first thing is he says that on the first day of the week, they are to put something aside and store it up, right? So this is supposed to be a weekly offering. The way that Paul words this means this is to be an ongoing thing, not a one-time gift, but that their generosity was supposed to be something that was happening every week. And on the first day of the week, which, by the way, today's the first day of the week, right? Sometimes we think of Sunday as being the end of the week, the end of our weekend, but it's not. It's the first day of the week, right? We come here to kickstart our week, so to speak, right? So he's saying that on the first day of the week, as you're gathering together in worship, you are supposed to be taking up this offering. So this worship was supposed to be something that was a part of their regular worship. And he says, each of you. So everyone on the first day of the week is supposed to be setting something aside for this offering. But he seems to take a little extra time to specify that this is for everyone, right? That it is for each of you. Paul's talking to individuals here, not just the church as one big body. Paul's talking to individuals. And I think why this is important is because sometimes I think we believe that giving is only for those who are well off. Right? That giving is something that's only for those who have means. And Paul makes it very clear that no, each of you is to set something aside. But then he goes on. Not only are they supposed to set something aside every first day of the week. But then he also says, as he may prosper. So each person is to set something aside for this offering, as he may prosper. What in the world does that mean? It means that all we're called to give, but not all we're going to give the same thing. Right? All we're called to give something, but it was understood that they were not all going to give the same amount. So people were to give according to their means. They were give they were to give in proportion to what they had to give. Now, what I think is interesting about this is that this would simultaneously be a comfort to the poor and afflicted, and it would be a tremendous challenge to those of means. Right? For Paul to say, as you give to this offering to support our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, you set something aside every week, not just some of you, but all of you, and as you give, you give as you may prosper. You give as you are able. You give in proportion to your means. We've got to remember that the same Jesus who said it was easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's that same Jesus that was pleased with the faith of the widow that put only two mites in the offering plate. It's that same Jesus. So you're to give in proportion to your means. And so Paul is saying here that whom God blesses with more, they ought to give more. And something else I think that's interesting here is that Paul doesn't really offer a bare minimum for the Christian here, does he? Paul doesn't set the amount and say, if you give this, you get to check the box and move on feeling pretty good about yourself. Give yourself a pat on the back as you go out the door. You're good. Paul doesn't do that. And what we often find in the Bible is that God doesn't really do that, does he? 
He doesn't give us a box to check because I think that God is less concerned with us checking a box on our Christian conduct report than He is about the really the condition of our heart. Paul leaves it up to their conscience what they are to give. And here's the thing though, they're not giving out of guilt but out of gratitude, right? Paul's saying, God has given you an abundance. Maybe it doesn't feel like an abundance to you, but God has blessed you. So turn around and be generous. But he goes on. He gives one more instruction on how to give. He says, don't do it under compulsion. He says, so there will be no collecting when I come. Paul wanted the offering to be completely taken up before he ever stepped foot in Corinth. Why? Because Paul knew that the moment he stepped foot in Corinth and people were looking him in the eye, they would just give out of guilt. Don't want Paul to give me a hard time. Don't want to feel guilty, right? So I'm going to drop something in the offering plate and let it go. Paul says, when I come to you, I don't want you to have anything left to give. In other words, Paul wanted their offering to be genuine. He wanted it to be sincere. He wanted it to be joyful, not under compulsion. What is it like to give under compulsion? You guys, you've been to Walmart over the Christmas holidays and you've seen the Salvation Army collection bucket, right? And it's always interesting to me watching people walk by the person collecting money for the Salvation Army, right? Because used to, they would station them at one door and you would watch people park on this side of the parking lot and walk to the other door on the other side of the parking lot to avoid the awkwardness of having somebody ask you for money when you didn't want to give. And then the Salvation Army got stealthy and they put two people out, right? Um, but that that's what it looks like to give under compulsion, right? It's that begrudging... God, I guess I have to. So I will, right? People drop a few coins in, whatever. Paul says, I don't want that disposition when you give. So I want you to give the offering before I get there so that when I get there, you're not giving out of guilt, but that you've already given out of the joyfulness and gratitude of your hearts. He wanted their giving to be cheerful, genuine, and he wanted it to be intentional. Not something spur of the moment, but something they had resolved in their hearts to do. And so... What does that mean for us, right? Obviously, we're not giving to, uh, you know, some struggling church back in Jerusalem. What does this have to do with us? Right? And I think that when we look at Paul and what he teaches here in 1 Corinthians 16, we see some of the principles that drive our understanding of what it means to tithe. So there are a few points I want you to take away, right? Just as Paul instructed that this offering was to be taken up on the front of the week, I think that still stands for us, right? The implication was that as people were getting paid, their offering was a regular thing. As people were getting paid, they would come and they would give money at their worship, right? That was a part of their worship routine. And I think that in the same way, I think that as we get paid, part of the rhythm God would have for us in our life is that as we get paid, we would turn around and we would give. Give it off the top, right? Frank Barker tells a story that I, I think is pretty interesting and pretty fitting to illustrate this point. He tells a, a story about a man who, uh, who had two calves born to him, right? He's a farmer and two of his female cows give birth and so he's got two brand new calves there. And he tells his wife, he says, I'm going to give one of these calves to the Lord. And she said, which one? And he said, I don't know. Let them grow up a little bit and we'll see. And I'll, I'll decide in a few months. And so a few months pass, and the man comes in one day and he tells his wife, the Lord's calf died. 
And she said, the Lord's calf. I didn't think you had decided which one you were going to give to the Lord. And he said, no, 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 I decided a week ago that I was going to give him the spotted one. It was the spotted one that died. <laughs> right? Um, it Because we know that if we wait to set aside something for the Lord, if we wait once we get paid to set aside a portion of what we've made, we say, well, we got a lot of bills coming out this month. we got a lot of things happening. I'll give at the end of the month. Lord's calf dies somewhere in the month, right? Um, what was set aside for the Lord is going to get spent elsewhere. And so I think it's good practice that we give at the front of the week, right? We give off the top. When we get paid, the first thing we do is, is we turn around and we tithe to the church. Next thing is that we're to give proportionately. If God blesses you with more, give more. When you get a raise, a large bonus, a big gift, an inheritance, see it as an opportunity to give more, not just spend it on yourself. If God has given you an abundance, give more. If God hasn't given you an abundance, give anyway, right? Trust Him. We serve the God, as Psalm 50.10 says, we serve the God who owns the cattle of a thousand hills. He owns it all and He's able to make all grace abound to you so that you'll always have what you need. Frank Barker also said when he was talking about tithing, he asked the question of his congregation, he said, would you rather have nine-tenths of what you can do with what God does with your money or ten-tenths of what you can do with it? Right? We, we see that 10% as being incredibly costly, but if you can't trust God with 10% of your income, do you think you can trust you more with it? Right? God can be trusted with your income no matter if it's an abundance or whatever the opposite of an abundance is. God can be trusted with it. Next thing, don't give under compulsion. Don't give under compulsion. Just as Paul instructed them, go ahead and resolve to do it. Don't wait till I get there to do it. Resolve to do it ahead of time. This is the last thing we're going to say about tithing. I think it needs to be something we predetermine to do. Right? There needs to be some intentionality about giving. This needs to be something that we resolve in advance to do. If you're married, that needs to be something you and your spouse talk about and say, hey, what are we agreeing to give on? And if you're not in the practice of tithing, maybe for you it doesn't look like starting out at 10%. Maybe it's 3 or 4 or 5%. And you work your way up. But get on the same page with your spouse and give. Trust the Lord, but don't give under compulsion. And you do that, right? You predetermine to do it so that when the offering plate comes by, you don't look at it like you look at the Salvation Army bucket. Okay? That's the goal. So Paul moves on from giving. And he moves on to our next point here on kingdom opportunities. If you'll keep reading with me, we'll pick up in verse 5. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Alright, so let's, let's stop there for a minute. Paul is sort of giving them his travel plans, right? He's been accused of being fickle by some of the people stirring up trouble in Corinth. So Paul go ahead and spells it out. This is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. And he says, I'm going to come and visit you. I will come and visit you. But he says, first, I have to pass through Macedonia. 
And he says, when I come and visit you after going through Macedonia, I want to stay for a while, right? I don't want this to just be a brief visit in passing. I want to stay for a while when I come. But he says, but before I can go into Macedonia, I have to stay in Ephesus because a wide door for effective work has been opened. I have to stay in Ephesus because a wide door for effective work has been opened. Now, when I read that, I think, great, right? Who doesn't want that? A wide door for effective work has been opened to Paul. That's all anybody could want, right? We don't know exactly what circumstances made him feel this way, but Paul was looking around and felt pretty optimistic about the work that God had for him in Ephesus. And so then it's interesting to me that on the heels of saying a wide door for effective work has opened to me, he then says in verse 9, and there are many adversaries. Right? A wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. There's opposition. There are people opposed to what I'm doing. There's people opposed to the work of the Lord. So in other words, Paul's saying there are tremendous opportunities and there are tremendous opposition. There's tremendous opposition. So it almost seems like Paul points to the presence of opposition as a sign that there actually is ministry happening, right? He almost points to opposition and says, see, this is proof that there are tremendous opportunities here. Now, let's be honest, right? We're cozy American Christians. This is about as backwards as we can possibly think, right? For Paul to say there's tremendous opportunities for service and there's tremendous opposition. Typically, the way we think about that is, if I encounter tremendous opposition, then it's time to turn around and go the other way because this is not right. Right? We don't look at opposition as being a good thing. We almost act shocked when it happens. And Paul says, no, there are tremendous opportunities for service here because I see tremendous opposition. Brothers and sisters, we have to see that following Christ is going to be costly. The road is not always going to be easy. Now, I don't know what this looks like. Maybe for many of you it looks like costly parenting where you're doing the very best you can for your kids, and no matter what you do, maybe it just infuriates them and they can't stand you. Maybe it leaves them feeling ostracized by their peers. Maybe your parenting and the way that God's led you to parent your child leaves you feeling ostracized by yours. Maybe this looks like fostering a child. Maybe this looks like a costly, difficult adoption. Maybe this looks like counseling and walking with someone through tremendous difficulty only to come out on the other side and then hate you. That happens. No matter what form it comes in, Jesus will lead us into costly opposition or into costly obedience. But here's the deal. He leads us into costly obedience with appointed opposition. There will be trials, setbacks, difficulties, not for our harm, but in order that we would grow to trust Him more that we would become more like Him, and that we would find Christ to be exceedingly worth the cost. Opposition didn't deter Paul, and it should not deter us. There is no kingdom work without difficulty. Leon Morris, a guy who wrote a commentary on Corinthians, among other things, says this. He says, "...the Christian is not usually left to pursue his work unhindered. It is part of the conditions under which we serve God that when we have great opportunities of service, we also have serious difficulties. Overcoming opposition is part of the opportunity. Now, I'd be the first to admit that I'm a little out of my league talking on this topic, right? I, 
I'm not very old. I don't have a ton of experience. Following Christ has cost me little. But I know many of you well enough to know that following Christ and obeying Him has cost you. It's been difficult. But I think you'd also be the first people to say that you have found Christ to be far more worth it than you would have ever imagined. Of course, we listen to the counsel of godly people in our lives. We pray and we ask God to lead us, to show us His will. But church, we can never assume that just because the path we're on is difficult that it's the wrong one. Following Christ closely will not be easy, but it will be oh so worth it. And Paul moves on. Verse 10. He says, When Timothy comes to see you, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with the other brothers, but it is but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. We're going to skip down to verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they were devoted them and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at their coming because they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So the next thing we need to talk about is is submission to kingdom laborers. Submission to kingdom laborers. First, Paul addresses the coming of Timothy. When he addresses the coming of Timothy, we'll keep this brief. When he addresses the coming of Timothy, he tells him, basically, don't let anyone despise him. Don't look down on him. Why? Why would that command be necessary? We know that Corinth was not a loving church, so much so that Paul felt the need to dedicate a significant portion of his letter to talking about what real love was. And so, we also know that Timothy was young. Maybe he was timid because of his youth. Paul didn't want Timothy to show up and get absolutely ran over by the people in Corinth. And so he tells the people in Corinth, don't look down on Timothy because he's doing the same work as I am. He's working for the Lord just as I am. So rather than despise him, they're to help him just as they would help the Apostle Paul because they're working for Christ. And then he goes on, he addresses Apollos in verse 12. Now the last time that Paul mentioned Apollos, he was talking about divisions that were springing up in the church, right? Kevin talked, uh, it was one of the first sermons he did in the letter, to first, in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And it was in chapter 3, Paul addresses divisions in the church, right? You had people, proud people, who were rallying around certain leaders within the church and saying, well, I'm of Apollos. No, 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 I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter, right? You had people rallying around different personalities in the church. We know that Apollos was someone with eloquent speech. He was somebody that the people loved listening to. He was a brilliant speaker. And because of that, he probably attracted quite a following, And we know that whenever Paul in this letter, whenever he says, now concerning, it means that he's actually responding to the church at Corinth about something they had written to him about in a previous letter. So it's likely that the church had said, hey, will you send Apollos back to us? We want to hear from Apollos. And Paul, rather than harboring envy and bitterness towards this beloved labor in the gospel... Paul speaks warmly of him and says that he even tried to urge Apollos to come to Corinth. For whatever reason, Apollos decides not to go because it was not at all his will that he should come to Corinth. 
Probably because he knew that his name was being used for division. And he wasn't going to come be a part of that. But he did say that that come when he was able, when he had the opportunity. But then he moves on to some much lesser known people we haven't really heard much about. He starts talking about the household of Stephanus, right? The first converts of Achaia. And he mentions two men with him, Fortunatus and Achaicus or Achaicus. It's probably even that both of these men were slaves that had been freed by Stephanus, right? Their names seem to indicate that. We really don't know much about these people, but what Paul wants the church at Corinth to know about this group of people is that they were faithful laborers. He said in verse 15, he says they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. They devoted themselves to the service of the saints. According to Paul... These men had dedicated their lives to the service of the church. Chrysostom notes that it wasn't just they minister, it's they have devoted themselves to the service of the church. The driving ambition of this group of men was to do whatever was necessary to serve God and His people. And that to Paul was worth commending. They were laborers. And calling them the idea is almost as someone who toils, right? It's someone who works to the point of being weary and then keeps going. That's, that's how Paul talks about these men. They weren't people looking for a platform. They weren't people serving just for the applause and the approval of other people. They were serving God by loving His church. They dedicated themselves to it. And Paul tells the church to do two things for men like this. For people like this. It says, number one, be subject to them. Verse 16. In other words, respect them. Heed their words. And even better, follow their example. Imitate people like that. Whether they have a title in the church or not, look for people who are serving when nobody else is watching. Look for people who love God and love His people. And Paul says, be subject to people like that. Submit to them. Listen to what they have to say and follow their example. But not only are they to be subject to them, verse 18, he says, give recognition to such people. See, people like Stephanus, they're not looking for applause. They're not serving so that other people would approve of them, so that other people would go, man, what a servant that person is. But just because they're not looking for recognition doesn't mean they shouldn't get it. Paul says when you see people like this in the church, recognize them. Thank them for what they do. There are people in this church, and I mean, it's really one of the privileges of working at a church is getting to see all the things that happen behind the scenes thanks to people that you have no idea they do it. It's really an awesome thing we have at this church. There's a lot of people that serve with little to no recognition. So, following the advice of Paul, look for people like this in our church. Submit to them. Listen to their wisdom. Seek to imitate them. And thank them for the things you see them doing because they often go completely unnoticed. Be looking for people like that in the church. Be subject to those people. One last exhortation we need to cover is on Christian strength, our fourth and final point. If you would, go back up with me to verses 13 and 14. Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 
Let all that you do be done in love. So let's let's pick these apart really quickly. Be watchful. In other words, always be on your guard. Be on alert against sin and its sway, and against the devil, our adversary, who's prowling like a lion to devour and to destroy. We have to be watchful and be alert. We're in a cosmic battle that we often have no ideas going on around us. We have to be alert. We have to be vigilant. Then he says, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. In other words, no matter what difficulties may arise, they are to stand firm and be courageous in their obedience. They're not to be fickle. They're not to stop obeying when it gets costly. They are to to persevere, to be strong in the faith. But it's interesting in saying be strong. I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear that phrase, be strong. What's our picture of strength? What do we see? I wonder if it's what God thinks of when He thinks of what strength is. I'm willing to bet it's probably not. When we think of strength, we think about someone who gets their way at any cost. Someone who can say whatever they want and do whatever they want and impose their will on other people. The image we actually see in Jesus was that He was the strongest, wisest man that had ever lived. He drove people in fear out of a temple with a whip. Right? He was a bad dude. And we see that same Jesus inviting children to come to Him. see that same Jesus crying at the grave of His friend. Jesus held strength and love and perfect balance. He's perfectly loving and perfectly strong. And that's why Paul says that in being strong, he says in verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. The Corinthian church was known for its speech and its knowledge. They didn't have a whole lot of love. And so for us, if we pride ourselves on being strong, but we can't love people, then I don't think we really have any idea what strength is. If the strength we look for in other people isn't manifesting itself in love, then it's not real strength. It's a cheap counterfeit. Paul says, let all you do be done in love. That's the mark of real strength. Being able to put other people ahead of yourself. Being able to love other people while also being resolute in your convictions. That's strength. But maybe... We'll close here. Maybe you're listening to these things that Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 16 and you're you're thinking to yourself, this is not me. This is not what I look like. Maybe for you, you hear that and you know that you are not a very strong person. You know how feeble you are, how weak your best efforts are, how inconsistent you are. And you think to yourself, you think to yourself, man, I'm not very strong. Or maybe you hear Paul's command to be loving. And you think to yourself, I'm not very loving. Maybe you've had people tell you that. But you don't know really how to change. Maybe you've become convicted over your lack of generosity. Or your tendency to serve only for a platform and the approval of others. Or waiting to serve until others are watching. 
Maybe you fail to obey when it becomes too costly. Where's the hope in that? I'm going to direct your attention back to verse 13 again when he says, Be strong. See, the interesting thing about the way Paul says that, be strong, it can actually be taken in the passive tense. Meaning, it's not a command to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's a command to be made strong by Christ. See, the power for the Christian life is not something inerrant to us. The power for the Christian life, the power to grow into the image of Christ, is not something that we possess by our nature. One of the first things Paul Connor told me when I came on staff here, you know, being around him and Stacy, it's like, you know, you used to have tons of quotes, you know, and I'm just trying to write them all down. But one of the things that Paul told me, he said, he said, know this, that the strength of the Christian life has to come from Christ. Living by your own power may look good for a time, but it will run out, it will wear thin, and the fallout can sometimes be catastrophic. We've seen that with many people, especially in leadership positions if you watch the news, right? Our power to live the Christian life cannot come from us. It has to come from Christ. And so the command is to be strong. When the Apostle Paul found himself to be overwhelmed with his weakness, confronted with his own sin, and he cried out to God, will you take this away from me? God's word back to the Apostle Paul, and I believe to us, was this. From 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. Christian, your power to live the Christian life will not come from you. God doesn't demand your strength. What He demands is an acknowledgement of your weakness. Because weak people are His choice vessels. He delights to work in weakness. You can't change you, but He can. If you're here this morning and the only gospel you've ever heard, the only version of Christianity you've ever heard is a pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just try harder Christianity, then I want you to know you haven't heard the Christianity of the Bible. You've never heard the real gospel. The invitation this morning is to come as you are, in your weakness, in your brokenness. And I love that Fred sang, Come You Sinners, this morning. That was a song that was on my heart as I was thinking through the sermon this morning. I never told him, hey, will you play that song? I'm doing a little bit of a mashup of the verses here, but I'm going to close with this. Come You Sinners says this, Come You Sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded by the fall. Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, but joined with power. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. Not the righteous, not the righteous, Jesus came to call. It was sinners that Jesus came for. People like you and me. People who are weak. This morning, if you identify with that weakness and you say, yeah, that's me, the invitation is to come to Jesus. For the believer and the unbeliever alike, come to Jesus because He is more than willing to work through weakness. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Gospel. Lord, we thank You that You are content to work with our weakness. Lord, in fact, You delight in it because it shows Your power, it magnifies it. God, I'm thankful that in Your love and Your mercy, Your call to the Christian life is not just try harder, do better. But it's actually acknowledge Your weakness and come to Me because I'm strong where You're weak. And that's a beautiful gospel that we need to hear over and over and over again. God, by Your power and Your grace, would You make us a more generous people? Lord, would You help us to have the heart of a servant, not seeking the approval or the applause of other people, but in loving You that we would serve Your people? Will You help us to obey when it gets costly, when it's difficult? Lord, will You help us to stand firm in the faith, trusting in You, resting in You? Holy Spirit, will You work these things in our heart this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.